0: morning, folks. Uh, Raise your hand if you are what they call a cradle Anglican. Okay, raise your hand. Born and raised in the Anglican Church. That's exactly what I thought, about six of you. Um, So raise your hand if you were actually raised in a church where the church calendar was not particularly observed, right? Raise your hand. Yeah, so at St. George's, I think it's one of the things that makes our church unique amongst Anglican churches. The vast majority of us were not raised Anglican. We would fall into one of two categories. We either migrated to Anglicanism, St. George's in particular, from conviction. That was my story. Or some of us in in the room this morning and watching from home, you got saved here at St. George's. And so this whole idea of a church calendar, things like Advent... Is somewhat foreign to you. So when we say today is the first Sunday of Advent, you might be thinking, what in the world is that? Now, I, I want to just, before we get into our passage this morning, set a bit of the stage for, for the church calendar, because we're going to be talking a lot about Advent in particular over the next four Sundays. The Christian calendar is something that can be observed well. It can be part of a rhythm and a pattern of gospel-focused, devotional Christian life. It can also be observed in a way where it becomes a massive impediment to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the doctrines of grace. Just my own sort of um, quick analysis, I, I would say that most who observe the church calendar, Advent in particular, probably observe it in varying degrees of an unhelpful way. They observe the church calendar in a way that's largely shaped by secular worldly values or maybe by Roman Catholic values, and both of those actually undermine the gospel. I think that's, that observation is one of the reasons that many Protestant churches over the years have thrown the baby out with the bathwater, Right? gotten rid of any observation of the church calendar because it can be abused and misused. I want to look at a couple of quick examples. You know, if you look at the penitential seasons, the seasons of Lent and Advent, um, Advent is the season in the, the church calendar that leads into Christmas And Lent is the season that leads into Easter. Both of them are um, fundamentally about penitence and repentance and returning to the Lord. Let, Let me just give you an example of how you can observe both poorly. If during Lent or Advent you choose to give something up, does that sound familiar? And that choice to give something up leads you then to post it on your social media feeds. For others to see. If you give something up during those penitential seasons and you tell your friends you feel pretty darn good about yourself for having accomplished this mighty deed of giving up chocolate, um, and you feel like you've really accomplished something for God, that's a bad way to observe a season of penitence. Now look, no one would ever say it that starkly, right? No one would ever say, yeah, yeah, I gave it up trying to justify my existence. I told everyone trying to make people think good thoughts about me. I did it to try to somehow please God. But somewhere in behind, that can be some of the motivation. And Many of us do those sorts of things and we're unaware of that underlying motivation. Or maybe we're just not willing to admit it to ourselves or to others. Let me be really, really clear. If in any way your observance of the church calendar, if in any way your observance of penitential seasons, and let's make it really pointed, if in any way over the next couple of weeks your observance of Advent whiffs of works, if it even presents in small ways as you doing something for God, It's time for you to rethink it. That's how you observe it poorly. So how do you observe something like Advent? Well, well, I encountered this in my own (laughs) journey over the years. And when I sort of came to a liturgical church and I began embracing a lot of the richness of our heritage, one of the things we came to was the church calendar. It came into clear focus for me in observance of Lent. So not specifically Advent, but the same kind of idea. One year, I remember, I um, decided to be super pious. And during the season of Lent, I decided to give up chocolate. Pretty impressive, right? Eh? Like, I'm going to go 40 days without chocolate. Well, I can cheat on Sundays, because that's allowed and anyway. And I learned a couple of things through that process that were actually gospel truths. The first one that I noticed is, Although I don't normally eat a lot of chocolate, the moment that I told myself I wasn't allowed to, I did nothing but crave chocolate. And Paul actually tells us in in his letters that that's exactly how the law of God works. It came to expose and to show you the sin that's already in your heart. Well, that was one thing. Another thing that I observed was um, in those moments where I was really struggling and frankly, I stumbled and failed a couple of times, I think I like ate a... Cadbury Easter cream egg or something I was confronted with the reality that I am incapable of doing a small thing like giving up chocolate for 40 days how could I ever hope to save my own soul and so in Lent whenever I began to observe it from that perspective I I began to see these gospel truths coming to the surface in my life and in my practice So any observance of the church calendar is only ever useful if it strips away any sense of saving yourself and if it presses you into your need for a savior. Over the next four Sundays, as we're talking about Advent, I want you to think about it as an annual invitation to renovate your soul. It's this perennial invitation to do soul spring cleaning, if you will, right? You know, yesterday we had a church cleaning uh, day, and it's, it's not because our church is ever dirty. Our church is always clean. It's just because over the course of a year, there's stuff that accumulates. There's chips on the wall. There's scuffs on the, on the floorboards. There's just things that need to be tidied up. It's like spring cleaning. You got to do it once a year or so. But here's the point. Even that perennial annual renovation and spring cleaning is only truly useful if it spills over into the rest of the year. Anything that you take on as an observance during these seasons of penitence and repentance, Advent, for example... It's only useful if it shapes the rest of the year for you. So so if there's something that you're giving up for Advent, give it up entirely. probably shouldn't be in your life to begin with. If over the course of the next four weeks leading to Christmas, you decide that what your soul really needs is more and in more intentional time in God's Word, so every day during Advent, you're going to do a devotional study when you wake up, well, do it for the rest of the year. If over the season of Advent you think God is calling me into a deeper place of prayer, then let that spill over and shape the rest of the year. See, that is the way that the calendar is useful to a Christian. So we're in Advent. And you might already know this, but do you guys know what the word Advent means, where it comes from? Advent comes from the Latin word for coming and so at advent we celebrate that jesus came and that he is coming a second time that's what this season is all about and in one sense the spirit of advent is right at the heart of christian belief and worldview central to our belief system is this great truth of the incarnation that jesus christ came it's also central to our lives as Christians because we believe not only that Jesus Christ came 2,000 years ago, but that he will come again as judge. And you know, this idea of Advent, when we begin to unpack it and apply it properly in our lives, it actually brings a great deal of hope. One of the earliest Christian proclamations in Aramaic was Maranatha. Maybe you've heard it. Maranatha. And and it's it's an Aramaic word that was transliterated into Greek and then transliterated into English and it simply means Lord come. You know friend this is the beating heart of our Christian faith. This, This capacity to look at our lives and to look at our world and rather than allowing it to ultimately lead us to despair, look out over everything and and cry out, Lord Jesus, even as you came the first time, come again and set everything aright. Aranatha. In that sense, Advent actually makes sense of our world. Christ came to the world the first time on a mission of amnesty to save sinners and to reconcile his people to himself. And Christ will come again. And when he comes again, he's coming to set things aright. When Christ comes again, he will take all of the brokenness, all of the abuse, all of the oppression, all of the sin that plagues our world, And it will all be met with that day of reckoning when the judge returns. That's at the heart of Advent, and it's at the heart of our Christian lives. And so during this season of Advent, we're going to have three Sundays where we look at the Gospel of Luke, three Sundays in the first chapter of Luke, and then the fourth Sunday, the Sunday right before Christmas, will be our lessons and carols service. I love the lessons in carol service. We're going to have the little kids singing. We're going to have the pastor's quartet singing again. Oh, you remember that one, do you? But but for the next three weeks, um, three Advent comings, three Advent visitations, all from the first chapter of Luke. Today's is... The angel Gabriel's visit to Zechariah and to Mary. Okay, Luke chapter 1. Trust you have your Bibles open there by now. We're going to jump right in. And we're going to look at these two accounts in parallel. Gabriel visits Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. And Gabriel visits Mary, the mother of Jesus. Okay, we're going to look at them in parallel and see God's word to us today. Look at verses 5 to 7. We're going to set the stage with Zechariah. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea. Now, we're told in the very first four verses of Luke chapter 1 that um, this gospel was written by a man named Luke. A man named Luke who undertook a serious investigative journalism report. Okay? He went and he interviewed eyewitnesses, and from those eyewitness accounts, he compiled the stories of Jesus from birth through resurrection and ascension, and then into the the account of the Acts of the Apostles, but we'll leave that for another day. And so when we read the Gospel of Luke, what we have in our hands is a carefully researched historical account that's based on eyewitnesses. Look, it's, it's almost become popular or in vogue for people to treat the gospel accounts as archetypal stories or things from which we can learn lessons. It doesn't really matter whether they happened or not. Right? That's sort of how people deal with the gospels these days, even tragically within the church. But we as Christian men and women have to reject that from the onset. Look, Luke says explicitly chapter 1 verse 5 he says all of this happened in the days of Herod he grounds it in a fixed point of history so that other people can fact check him that's what he's doing he's saying guys this stuff really happened and it happened during this time it would be as though I was trying to tell you guys a story and I said You know, this story I'm about to tell you took place several years ago back when Stephen Harper was Prime Minister. Or if I was trying to tell you a story and and trying to communicate to you that it really happened, I'd say um, this story took place several years ago back when Kathleen Wynne was Premier of Ontario. That's what Luke is doing. He's setting the tone for everything that is to follow, and he's saying these are real historical events. Throughout his gospel, he lends credibility through the use of names. He tells us in verse 5 that this was all in the days of Herod, king of Judea. He then goes on and says what he's about to tell us is this first account, and it's about two people, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. Zechariah is a priest. And again, we note That salvation history is not something abstract. It's not a fairy tale from which we can glean lessons, whether it happened or not. It is God working in the theater of time and space. You'll notice as we move through this account of Zechariah that um, it happens in the everyday to normal people. And friend, if you're a Christian man or woman, this should be encouraging to you too. Sometimes you feel like your life is mundane. You're waking up in the morning and, you know, packing lunches for your kids and getting off to school and then coming home and, you know, lather, rinse, repeat, start it all over again the next day. And you think, what significance does this have? We read these accounts and we see that God moves his purposes forward in the everyday with normal people. Verse 6. They're righteous, godly folk, we're told. In verse 7, we're told that they have one thing that weighs heavy on their hearts. Did you see what that was? They have no child. We're told in Luke's account that they have no child for two reasons. The first one is that Elizabeth is barren, and the second one is they're getting old. And so Luke is painting this, he's laying the groundwork for Zechariah's story by telling us that this good, godly couple has no child and that we have every reason to believe that that ship has sailed, right? And that's what's shaping their longing. All right, that's setting the stage for Zechariah. Let's move down to verse 26 and set the stage for Mary. We're told that the angel Gabriel, the same guy, is also going to visit Mary. In verse 26, it happens six months after his visit to Zechariah. God sends Gabriel to Nazareth, a city in Galilee. Look at verse 27. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. See how it all ties in? We've just spent months looking at the life of David. We're told her name was Mary. Two stories in parallel. Let's go back now to verse 8. Gabriel will appear to Zechariah. We're told in verses 8 to 12 that this remarkable thing happens to Zechariah. He's going about his day-to-day work. And an angel of the Lord appears to him. Well, again, I think this speaks to us in our day-to-day life. You know, Christian man or woman, sometimes you can feel paralyzed by the question, what does God want me to do, A or B? And that question can actually immobilize you and sideline you because you sit back and you spend all of your time weighing out pros and cons, pleading for God to make his will clear to you and trying to figure it out before you're willing to take a step. And what we see here in the life of Zechariah is in the midst of his longing, in the midst of his pleading before the Lord, He just carries on with business. It's a guiding principle from Scripture. And the angel Gabriel will appear to him. Look at verses 28 to 29. We're told back earlier that the messenger of God comes to Zechariah in the middle of his work, but we're told that the angel Gabriel comes to Mary in a way that's so unnotable that it's not even mentioned by Luke. Did you notice that? We're not told what she's doing when the angel comes. So the case of Mary being visited by Gabriel, if we're looking at it in parallel to Gabriel's visit to Zechariah, we see that God's messenger visits Zechariah in the middle of his day-to-day work. God's messenger visits Mary in a way that's so generic that it's not even worth Luke mentioning. Here's the point. We all want God's word to come to us with fireworks and sounding trumpets. But his messenger came to Zechariah and to Mary in the mundane, even in the secret. We don't even know what Mary was doing. And friend, I hope that this morning that's an encouragement for you. Just keep going. One foot in front of another. That's what faithfulness looks like. Now, I can't move on to the next point without acknowledging that this moment of Gabriel visiting, first Zechariah and then Mary, it's one of the most shocking moments that we see in Scripture. It's one of those that stands out because it's so foreign to our day-to-day life and experience. The appearance of an angel. If you have ever had an angel appear to you in bodily form, raise your... No, no, I don't want you to. It's wild when you think about it, right? Well, the first thing to note is that the word angel itself just literally means messenger. And so the word of God came to Zechariah and then came to Mary in the form of a messenger. And that messenger had a name. His name was Gabriel. But maybe you heard Glenda reading that this morning and you thought, why does God not send angels today? Or if he does, why does he do so so rarely that I've never seen it and no one I know and trust has ever seen it? You know, friends, I want to I suggest to you that the reason for that is because we today have something better. We have something better Than God sending messengers to us in bodily form as angels from time to time. We have the Bible. We have the complete, finished, revealed word and will of God. We don't have to wait for a heavenly page to visit us from time to time in our sleep or at work. We have our Bibles. We have it on our nightstand. We have it on our bookcase. We have it on our coffee table. We even have it on our phones. We can pick it up and hear the word of the Lord anytime we choose. And that's even better. So Gabriel appears. Then Gabriel has a message first to Zechariah. Look at verses 13 to 17. Actually, begin back at verse 12. Uh, Actually, verse 11. (laughs) And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Verse 12. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Have you ever in any area of your life had fear fall upon you? It just feels like this rushing wave of panic where you're like, and you actually feel like, oh my goodness, I'm undone. I've had it several times in my life. One of the most notable was the very first time I ever went skydiving. Um, we ascended up into the air at 10,000 feet. Buddy opens the door, puts your feet out over the edge, and you're like, Woo! It's like dread washes over you. Well, that was Zechariah's experience in the presence of the angel of the Lord. In Gabriel's word to Zechariah in verse 13, he says, don't be afraid. He says, your prayer has been answered. And he says, Elizabeth will have a son. His name will be John. First thing he says, do not be afraid. It's it's worth noting as you read through the Bible that any time that God or a messenger of God appears to someone in scripture, fear and dread is the common response this ought to serve as a reminder to us that our God is holy. So holy that when he appears in Theophany or when he sends a messenger like Gabriel, the person receiving the visitor is washed over with fear. It's also normal that that same person who's afraid is told either by God or by the messenger of God, do not be afraid. And so the pattern of the Christian life is not one where we avoid fear. It's not one where we pretend fear doesn't exist. It's one where we face fear confident in the strong hand of our God. That's true of our sin as well when we face a holy God. We're confronted with our sin and so we're afraid of a holy God, but then we press into the promises of the forgiveness of our sin In Jesus Christ. And God says to us, do not be afraid. You should be afraid, but don't be afraid. But Gabriel tells Zechariah. Secondly, he tells him, your prayer has been heard. One of the most comforting and beautiful lines in all of Scripture, is it not? Put yourself in Zechariah's sandals. (laughs) Your prayer has been heard. Sometimes, as God's people, we pray and we feel as though our prayers are not even making it past the ceiling, right? Just bouncing off the ceiling. Or Sometimes we feel like our prayers are fruitless. But the encouragement here from Gabriel is that God has heard your prayer. I was thinking about this in my daily Bible reading the other day. I read Psalm 84. In Psalm 84, verse 11, the psalmist says, No good thing does God withhold from them who walk uprightly. Now, your upright walking is not something of your own doing. That's your status in Christ that's declared upon you, and so that's confident and sure. And the promise from God is that he withholds no good thing from you. Think about that as it relates to your prayer life. Perhaps you've prayed all kinds of things before the Lord. The promise from God is that anything that you pray that is a good thing, he will never withhold from you. Think about it in the opposite direction, okay? Anything that God has withheld from you, even though you've prayed for it, was not a good thing. Look, in the words of the great American philosopher Garth Brooks, thank God for unanswered prayer. All those prayers that you prayed that God didn't answer the way that you thought he should, those were not good things, praise God. Otherwise, I'd be married to my high school girlfriend. What a disaster. No, but no, really think about this, right? And so Gabriel appears to Zechariah and says, don't be afraid. God has heard your prayer. Christian man or woman feel that and know that promise from Scripture. The third thing that Gabriel tells Zechariah is, you will have a son, his name will be John, you and I know him as John the Baptist. And here's the advent point, verses 13 to 17. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will call his name John. to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. It's the promise. The angel Gabriel is saying to Zechariah, the answering of your prayer is more than just God providing a child to childless people, although that's a wonderful thing as well. He's telling Zechariah that This child being born will be a hinge on which turns the entire story of salvation history. That John will be born. And when he is born, he will be the fulfillment of the promises that God made back in Malachi. Now, if you're not familiar with the biblical account, if you turn to the end of your Old Testament, you can check it out if you don't believe me, The last book of the Bible is a book called Malachi, and the prophet Malachi said that God was going to send a Redeemer, and before that Redeemer came, there would be one with the spirit of Elijah who would come, who would prepare the way. Then there had been 400 years of God's silence between Malachi and this account in Luke. And Gabriel says to Zechariah, the son that your wife Elizabeth will miraculously bear, he's that one. He will be the one who comes in the spirit of Elijah. He will prepare the way for the Messiah to come. And he will be a turning of the page in salvation history. He will be the last Old Testament prophet that will mark the coming of the Messiah. All of that is loaded into this promise. You know, I, I am always nervous at Christmas time that the familiarity of these accounts would somehow cause them to lose their weight for us. But you've got to press into this, friends. This promise from Gabriel to Zechariah is the fulfillment of Zechariah's longings. Zechariah knows that God's people have been living under these 400 years of darkness where God has not spoke, growing darkness, pressing darkness, darkness that felt like oppression for God's people. And so when this promise came to Zechariah, he was like, awesome, we're going to have a baby, and even better, that baby will be the fulfillment of the promises of God. It will be God's promise to bring about a deliverer that will rescue us from the darkness. Before I move to this next and final point, maybe that's a word for you this morning. Maybe the last couple of years in particular have felt like an ever-increasing darkness, a hardship. It's taken different forms for you. And you think, well, what is the Christian response? Well, that's a sermon for another day. The Christian responses are many. What should a Christian man or woman learn in a season of growing darkness? Well, so many things. But the one I want to encourage you with today is to not waste it. But to allow the increasing difficulty and darkness around you to press you into a longing for the coming of a Savior. It would be possible for you to have gone through the last couple of years here in Canada and, you know, just become grumpy or scared or angry. And none of those are fruits of the Spirit. In the increasing darkness and difficulty, in the increasing hardship, Christian men and women long for the coming of a Savior. Don't waste it. Why wouldn't that totally rewrite the history of the last two or three years? If you changed your perspective? What if God in his goodness has allowed the darkness to rise so that you would be pressed into longing for a savior and a deliverer? Don't waste it. Gabriel visits Zechariah with a message of hope. Your prayers have been answered. John will be born. Gabriel visits Mary, verses 30 to 33. And Gabriel's message to Mary also results, verse 29, in her being greatly troubled. Did you see that? See, Zechariah is greatly troubled and fearful when Gabriel appears. Mary is greatly troubled when Gabriel appears. Gabriel tells Zechariah, do not be afraid, verse 30. What does Gabriel tell Mary? Do not be afraid. He goes on and he says to Mary, a son will be born to you. And he will be great. And he will reign forever. See, this is the Advent hope. This is the crowning jewel of all of the cosmos and all of creation. In the darkness of the days of Zechariah and Mary, Christ came. In the darkness and growing darkness of our present age, Christ has already come and he will come again. That's our advent hope. We long for it. And it's a hope that's not empty, but a hope that is sure. How did Zechariah receive this message? Look at verse 18. He says, How can this possibly be? And he tells Gabriel, Yeah, yeah, great story, but it's not possible, dude. I'm old. My wife is old and she's barren. So so here's Zechariah's opposition to the promises of God being fulfilled. He looks at himself and he says, I'm too old. My wife and I have been trying, to use delicate language, for a long time and she's barren. Just not going to happen. How does Mary meet the news? Look at verse 34. She says, Yeah, okay, Gabriel, but how's it going to happen? Opposite reasons to Zechariah. Zechariah says, I'm old. Mary says, I'm too young to receive the promises of God. Zechariah says, The promises of God can't be fulfilled because my wife and I have been trying for a long time. Mary says, The promises of God can't be fulfilled in me because I've never tried. I'm a virgin. This is the summary of all of our problems when it comes to the promises of God. God makes promises to us, and rather than fixing our eyes on him, on Jesus as the fulfillment of the promises, we look at ourselves and we come up with all the reasons why it could never happen. So this morning, if you find yourself in either of those people in this account. Perhaps you would look at this account and you'd say, R.D., I am Zechariah. I am too old. Perhaps you would be Mary and you would say, I am too young. Or maybe you're somewhere in between. Hear these words from Gabriel in verse 37. Nothing will be impossible with God. And respond with the faith of Mary. Verse 38 I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I don't want to get out ahead of myself on next week's sermon, but Zechariah failed to promise and was struck dumb until John was born. Mary received and trusted the promises of God and sang the Magnificat, my soul magnifies the Lord. Trusting in the promises of God will send you off, singing joyfully, even in the darkness. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word reminds us that we are jars of clay we are but dust but that you are the good God who promises and fulfills I ask Lord that over these next few weeks as we look at the account in Luke that our hearts will be filled with great hope and joy that Jesus Christ you came to save what was lost And Jesus, you will return. You have not left this worn-out, weary world to its own devices. God, would there be a growing sense of longing in each and every one of your people. We pray this in your name. Amen.